welcome to Track Changes, Changer de Voix, a podcast about public sector innovation. My name is Dan Monafou. And I'm Susan Johnston. We're very excited about this episode. It's our French first debut, meaning that our friends and colleagues Francis Nolan Poupard and Kaylee Levesque have been in the driver's seat. We're going to do a deep dive into Montreal's innovation ecosystem. We're very excited about this. Namely, we're going to look at the social, open, and technological communities there. Hang on, Dan. Before we start, we should talk about some of the feedback that we've received to date. Uh-oh. No, helpful. Some of our listeners note that we do sound a bit too scripted. And Hold on, let me turn the page on that one. No, okay. <laughs> and that we can sound a bit uh, corporate. Mm, okay. See? Well, we do write a script. Why? To keep us on track. And so and... that we don't babble on and on about things, I think. We could and loosen up a bit. So we have one segment for you, and it's kind of a fact-finding mission, really, that our colleague Francis has prepared based on his trip to Montreal. He was doing a journey of discovery. He followed three Montreal-based organizations uh, working in the innovation sector that are, are helping public sector organizations trying to basically change how they do things. Dan, do you want to talk a little bit about the impetus for this trip and this approach in general? Basically, when we talked about this, we were like, let's just try to get out of the bubble. We were trying to, to figure out what are the hotspots of, of innovation in terms of expertise, practice, and this you know, social innovation, open government, technology, you know, tech sector. On the English-speaking side, we always hear about Waterloo maybe as a, as a tech hub. Are there others? And when we were talking about doing a French-first show, do we know much about what's happening outside of the traditional Ottawa, Toronto, maybe Waterloo corridor? We suspected Montreal might be such a place, and that's why you know, Francis uh, went digging. And really the hope was that by the end of it, we'd find that ecosystem, be able to really dive into it and, and talk to, to those who are major contributors to it and basically learn from that. What can we apply as innovators in the federal government? What can we apply into our work internally, but, but also dealing with, with these uh, external partners? That's helpful, Dan. Thank you. Francis met with three different organizations and spoke with them about their mission, their methodology, their work, as well as their their perception of innovation work uh, within the public service itself. In terms of format, we're experimenting a bit. What uh, Francis has done is asked each of the organizations the same question and made space for open-ended answers. So you'll hear the questions and then excerpts of their answers one by one. In one case, we interviewed two people at the same organization. That said, each of the, the individuals have very different voices, so I don't think there's going to be any concerns about confusing them. And on that note, here we go. To begin, we'll introduce the four people who will be our guides to the Montreal social innovation ecosystem. So my name is Laurence Bakayoko. I'm the director and founder uh, at Project AE. My name is Elizabeth Hunt. I'm with Percolab. And as we're a flat organization, we don't have titles. My name is uh, Dominique Bell. I'm with Percolab. My name is Monique Chartrand, and I'm the director general of Communautique. The four organizations all work in the area of social innovation, but each has a truly unique mandate. One thing that is clearly universal is the desire to build capacity to, to make this uh, large-scale uh, changes happen. We want to help them in the process of social innovation, trying to find new solutions for the problems that they have, that they see in society, and that they want to have, again, a solution. We're not specialists of 
an, a domain, for example, fair trade or human rights. But we are a specialist in the process of trying to find new solutions, working with society, having a collaborative approach, uh, communicating around the issue that you want to communicate and then finding together a solution. Essentially, the work that we do is to accompany these individuals, these organizations, these government departments, whoever our clients are, in doing this thing differently, helping them figure out what the question is and how to get there. The way that we do it is working with uh, methods that are basically anchored in, in collective intelligence and collaborative methodologies that really bring the idea like we all together are smarter than just me creating space for people to have uh, sometimes difficult and courageous conversations within their organizations and to move their ideas forward. This can look like a public consultation. It can look like an organizational restructuring that's done differently. It can look like a conference. All of what Elizabeth described is um, under the, the label of labs and collective intelligence and we help clients navigate complexity, uncertainty with an intention to transform. For the last 17 years, Communautique has been an open innovation hub dedicated to social and technological innovation learning, collaboration, research, and experimentation. I would say that we have specialized for the last five years as a living laboratory. We have become a living lab that provides innovation processes. We have also developed the first fab lab in Canada. So we have specialized in becoming a digital workshop, so coaching various stakeholders in rapid prototyping, which has become accessible, democratized, we provide open and digital innovation training, and we have specialized in two areas in particular, that is in the silver economy for practically two years now, and we are now starting green economy work. Experimentation was everywhere at the three organizations. It was completely integrated into the way these folks did things, and it was really fascinating to see how they use everyday tools that are considered a bit out of the ordinary or, or very different in a more traditional public sector space, and really the, the importance of integrating these digital tools. We work with design thinking, not just because it is uh, a la mode, not because it's a hype thing, it's just because it works, it has been proved. It's a, a set of tools, a methodology that allows you to go from validating um, a problem society and then creating with the stakeholders that you want to involve, creating a solution. I like to make this comparison with the software world where you have different editions of a software and you update it all the time and you have different versions. And we have been practicing collective intelligence and new ways of working for the last 10 years. We're part of this community and we're not shy to prototype and fine-tune. So we're always at the forefront of those practices. The Living Laboratory is an open innovation process with users as stakeholders and in real situations quickly into prototyping mode. So it allows open innovation organizations to end their dry spells and to share their skills and to go look for skills in the community. The Fab Lab is really a fabrication laboratory. So a physical space with a certain amount of basic equipment, and these are digital control machines that allow us to quickly go from an idea to an object. So really rapid prototyping with 3D printers or digital milling machines, laser cutters and sewing machines, really traditional carpentry machines to work metal, casting. So it's limitless for building almost anything. So we are democratizing access to the industrial age in the digital era. We saw that the appetite for social innovation in Quebec is very clear. Organizations work in partnership with municipalities, civil society to address persistent problems with different tools. 
It facilitates social integration, open communication, but, but also reciprocal partnerships. For example, we had a project with Bicomo, which is a, a city uh, in Quebec. And we actually worked with Bicomo, Bicancourt, and Deschambault Grandin. Basically, they were telling us, so we want to have our citizens involved in creating new projects, but also sustainable projects. That We want them to have projects that will benefit the whole society. So they started to have citizen farms. With those farms, you know, they wanted to have more cooperation because they realized that they were not uh, getting as much as citizens that they wanted to be involved in the project and they didn't have enough, yeah, basically excitement around the project in the, in the city and in, in, in the whole town. Well, I'm going to give an example of uh, an organizational retreat that I did last month with one of my colleagues. And uh, this organizational is an international NGO. Organizationally, they had this challenge where their funding has exploded. And in the last year, they went from being six to being 30. And so there's this this challenge of having a 30-year-old organization that has all kinds of um, wisdom and experience and then all of a sudden being basically a brand new organization with 30 people and being like, well, how do you reflect about collective identity? How do you maximize the potential of the kind of work that they can do and the kind of with all of these people who don't know each other, who haven't worked together? So over the course of three days, really our work was to like maximize and draw out the collective intelligence in that group and at the same time help them think as an us. Going from I'm new here, I'm new here to like, oh, we're an us. We held a signature event last August that we called Age 3.0, the Creative Aging Fair. So it was a bit of a maker fair, but also with the living lab approach, meaning that the exhibitors, whether businesses, research laboratories, or NPOs, so nonprofit organizations, were invited to challenge their products, their services, with the visitors. We also learned that despite the strong enthusiasm for social innovation, barriers such as communication challenges, this persistent resistance to change, and, and lack of resources are still around. All three organizations uh, were very quick to acknowledge challenges to move beyond curiosity needed to, to working in new ways. It takes time and the path to follow is not without many hurdles. There are barriers that are psychological or just personal barriers in front of change. If you want to change, you have to think about the people that you want to involve in the change that you want to have. That personal barrier is really, really important. That's why in the process of, again, social innovation and the process of design thinking, we start by validating the problems with the people that are concerned by these problems. And sometimes it's just like you want to do it solo. You want to have your solution and do the amazing innovative project, but then you don't want your ideas to, to be confronted with others. And that's a problem that we see often. And again, that's why communication is really important. Societally, we have a command and control way of working. Somebody, there's a boss, and everybody else falls in order. When you're working in immersion processes, it's a really, really different way of working. and It's a way of working that, that actually requires a huge amount of trust if things are going to work out. Because we're not taught as a society, unless I'm making this vast generalization, we're not taught how to create conditions in which we can work well together we're often not taught how to name things around power, around money, around control. We're not taught to name all those things. So I think that's one of the things that comes up a lot is that 
to work in agile, emergent ways requires trust and it requires a team approach. But while as most structures that we have are very low on the trust scale, very high on the control scale, very low on the transparency scale, and so you have a, an intention that's one thing, but you have a structure that doesn't support it. As Elizabeth said, whether it is a question of power, a question of money, or a question of trust, we're hide-wired to protect ourselves in a work environment, to show up with a mask, and, and those are really hurdles in the way of innovation. We work very, very hard at helping break down those, those hurdles so that innovation can happen. Communication in general is a challenge for everyone, but it also becomes one when you use innovation processes and an innovation lab. There are a lot of buzzwords, living lab, fab lab, open innovation, and what do they mean? So it's a big communication challenge, and we sometimes run into organizations that have had experiences that were not necessarily conclusive, that have gone through processes with those names. They had not really had a good experience. So based on that, it's always an additional challenge for us. The public sector is not an obvious partner or client for these organizations. Governments are really large organizations, and navigating a partnership or a collaboration can be very difficult. Speaking with our four representatives of the desire to work together, this was very clear, not only to make large-scale changes, but also because of these uh, mutually beneficial learning opportunities. Of course, when you think about governments, it's a little bit slower. That's true. Well, I think people that are working in the public sector who are also trying to bring in innovative practices, collaborative practices, collective intelligence practices within, within their work, either internally or in the events or consultations that they put on, they're walking a really fine line. Because on the one hand, they're trying to do something that's new, that's cutting edge, that's responsive, that's emergent. But on the flip side, they're working within an organization where they're literally accountable to millions of people. And that if they do a wrong step, they will have the media, they will have like every level of power down on their throats. The way I experience and I see government uh, uh, function and think is not often compatible with this uh, because of the way uh, governments are structured, because of the way people think, and because of a notion of fear and lack of trust and need to control. And it's an issue because it's at the opposite of the spectrum of the prototyping innovation. We see it on a regular basis, for example, when we receive an RFP. Which, we, which is sometimes so tight, so rigid, where you want at the beginning of the process to map it out all the way through. That worked years ago, or in the previous century, but today we can't operate that way. So this, there's, a, there's really a gap, and we need to cross that gap. My dream would be for the um, governments to have the right to make mistakes and I haven't really found it yet. What we've seen is that there's a lot of interest coming from public administrations as well as all types of organizations. There's a lot compared with when we began. We see that many organizations have moved forward. No doubt the machinery of government has always been, it might have evolved a lot and it might be doing so, but there's less flexibility and speed. We often see that it happens anyway. People are going to get there. It may take a year longer than we would like, but there's a lot of hierarchy in the machinery of government.
All of our interviewees made it clear that social innovation does not happen in silos. The three organizations have been working in this area for years, but without the collaboration and resources of the public and private sectors, the benefits of these new approaches and methodologies uh, really cannot be realized to, to solve our problems or to meet the challenges that we have. So when we think about social innovation, most of the times we think about an innovative product or service uh, answering a specific need in society, you know, fixing a system in society. But we need to think it, to think social, social innovation as the whole process. And the whole process does not start with, let's find solutions together. It starts with validating the project at the base, at the core of it, you know. And that's a, a new way of thinking. So we need to think about funding to help from identifying problem in society. Because in traditional fundings, the government comes and says, here's a problem. The problem is X, Y, and Z. And we need to have different actors, different stakeholders to find solutions to that problem that we already identified. One thing we would like to challenge public administrations a lot on is that investment in infrastructure seems to be easy, but investing in processes, investing in human beings seems to be a challenge. We often see cultural infrastructure projects for 20 million, and they're going to put $15,000 into an innovation process, when in my opinion, they should have put a million into the innovation process, and in the end, the project would be truly sustainable, in phases, with a whole set of highly developed conscious services. But they say no. Infrastructure, yes, it's worth this much, they're able to calculate it, but human beings, the process, it's harder to open the coffers. We rely a lot on crowdsourcing. We put platforms online, but an online platform by itself doesn't work. Innovation processes happen in person. The online may accompany the in-person process, but it can't replace it. And finally, if I tell you that from the outside, there seems to be a very active, highly developed innovation ecosystem, does that surprise you to hear that? What do you think explains this reality or, or this misperception? I think, you know, Quebec, we have a strong history with uh, social economy which uh, here in Quebec at the base of uh, the social innovation movement is the social economy, basically. We have a strong sector, third sec sector, based on those like collaborative and community organizations, uh, co-ops and uh, nonprofits doing business as projecté. So that social economy sector, sector, you know, really implemented the, the how do you say, like, la graine, um, uh, the seed, it really implemented the seed of social innovation here in Quebec. And it's really strong, it's based in our community organization, and we have a lot of community organizations. And so that's why I'm not surprised. Well, this is happening internationally. It's happening everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. That being said, is there a specific ecosystem within Montreal? I think there's an incredible richness within Montreal because Montreal is at the intersection of so many different things. I think as Montrealers, um, we don't define ourselves by any one thing. It's always, yeah, and, and, and. And I think that's what kind of leads to this whole... Um, I think the conditions that are here in Montreal because of our diversity in terms of linguistic, in terms of population, in terms of background, in terms of different economic classes that are working together, I think those are all create conditions for, for social innovation to happen really, really easily. 
like the diversity of Montreal is something um, very, very strong. The entrepreneurial culture is very strong. The creativity is very strong. There is, uh, it's, um, it, it's a su quite a supportive society as well. I think there's a magic size to the city and, and different um, clusters or different sectors overlap. Uh, we spoke a lot about social innovations. I, I like to also observe that um, social is not innovation is not isolated in a in a in a, in a corner, and it also overlaps with uh, other aspects of the economy. We have uh, for-profit businesses who are doing very innovative things um, with a social impact. My personal impression is that there is a sort of generational revival. I would say an enthusiasm for changing the world. We're in a state of rather significant environmental and financial system crisis. So I think that revives this way of doing social entrepreneurship, which I will go so far as to say is very prevalent. All right, well, there you have it. That's the end of the interviews. We're going to finish off by taking two or three minutes to discuss recurring themes and whether they're relevant for the federal public servants, for what, what we do. We went into this innovation ecosystem in Montreal not really knowing what we'd find. We heard some very interesting reflections on the Montreal ecosystem. For example, Laurence at Projecté on the role of the social economy in Quebec. But at the same time, uh, Madame Chartrand at Communautique and Elisabeth reminded us that this innovation ecosystem is something that is found in many cities in the world. So it is a global trend. There are factors in Montreal that have you know, led to the emergence of these organizations there. There are really clear opportunities in other Canadian cities um, and at various orders of government. Interesting, Dan. As for me, I'd have to say it was good to hear those organizations talk about their own perceptions of the public service and how it's viewed from the outside. There were certainly some positives and some challenges in there. One positive thing is it's always encouraging to see our partners understand the context in which we operate, that we face certain constraints, and meaning that it's not always easy to do an about-face and to be flexible, um, regardless of how much we might want to at any given point. And it's true, there are processes and structures that can challenge our enthusiasm, but they also they exist for very good reasons. It was interesting to hear Laurence and Elizabeth acknowledge that at the same time, when we do manage to move things forward, the potential impact uh, across the public sector is massive. It's always energizing to hear that. I very much appreciated Laurence who ex explained that the desire to innovate is not you know, made concrete in some sort of artistic vagueness, but that we need vigor in the method and that, well, in, in Ottawa, maybe we're more at a stage where, you know, we have the desire and we're beginning to build the capacity for the methods and the tools, but that we're just beginning this bigger adventure, if you will. And to keep exploring and iterates. That's, it's so very true, Dan. Well, that brings us to the end of our third episode. We would like to say a really big thank you to Projecté, Percolab, and Communautique, and, and, and really thank them for embracing uh, Francis uh, you know, with, with open arms. We started not having any contacts, and, and now we feel that we really know what's happening there. And, and At this can, point in time. Yeah, yeah. We, can, we can absolutely reach out. And um, so... The other thing we were asked to mention is that Francis got a, a whole lot of great content. This is but 
one small fraction of the of the conversation. Maybe take a look at the Project This site for a new magazine and e-learning platform on social innovation methods. Also take a look at a Fab Lab initiative of Communautique, which really will try to encourage the use of this tool. So introducing Fab Labs in Canada and outside of Quebec. This concludes episode three. We'll be back with you soon. A huge thank you to our guests who took the time to answer our questions in both official languages, as well as to our Francophone producers, Francis and Kaylee, who wrote this episode. We uh, welcome your feedback, and as you can see, we take it to heart. We, we take it seriously, so thank you for that, and, and please keep the feedback coming. Thank you. And we're going to say goodbye with Journey of the Mandarin by our friend Mark Matz. Until next time.